Welcome back to the second instalment of the I Am, brought to you by SuperRocketMan.com and written by Robert Samuels. In a rain-soaked side street in Bloomsbury, the heavy cycle chain of a single-speed racer was being unprized by a skilled thief. The chain was carefully reattached to the post. The thief checked in all directions for eyewitnesses, slipped on his shoulder bag of tools and pushed the pedal down. After three revolutions, the bike came to a violent halt, hurtling him high over the drop handlebars. Ah! Oh! He cried as he struck the hard, cobbled walkway. Amidst confusion and shock, he turned back to see the racer slowly right itself, wheel itself back to the railings and lock itself secure. Terrified, he fled into the night. The sky let out a distant rumble of thunder. The top deck of the 242 bus was hot and clammy, but relatively empty. At the back, three intimidating youths sat playing trance music from their mobile phone, nodding, frowning. The repetitive beat cut through the top deck, annoying all within earshot. An elderly pensioner swivelled in his seat to look back at them. The youth steered right at him, and as they did, they slowly turned the volume up, making the old man wince. The youths cackled with laughter. A young mother turned in her seat to face them. Do you mind turning that down, please? Eh? The music, can you turn it down? People don't want to hear your music. Mind your business, miss. Can you turn it down? So what's this got to do with you? Does this have anything to do with you? Does this have anything to do with you? It's not your room, it's a bus. It's my bus. The youth laughed, but suddenly the phone flew out of his hand. Levitating in mid-air, two feet in front of him, the music still playing. What's going on, man? The youth tried to grab it, but it hovered out of reach. Obia, I did another. The phone hovered momentarily longer, then hurled itself out of the open window. No, I ain't got insurance, man. The youth raced off the bus, hitting the emergency door open button. The old man looked at the young mother. I didn't do that, she said. In the distance, thunder rumbled again. On the edge of the roof of a Broadgate financial building stood Michael Willis. Don't take another step, he shouted, his eyes rolling within his gaunt face. Fifty feet of concrete roof lay in between him and Sally, the police mediator, and a further three hundred feet to the street. Michael, I just want you to know... There are people that love you, people that care. I know what happened was a terrible thing, an unfortunate thing, but we can help you. Shut up! Stay back! It's just words! That's not true, Michael, Sally intervened. You make me sick! Michael was tearful. The amalgamation of medication, alcohol and drugs coursed through his spindly torso. The mediator rose to her feet. A mistake. Michael's head shook violently no. He took one look back into the eyes of the mediator, then at the street below, and launched himself from the roof. As he began his descent into the abyss, Michael found himself frozen, but not falling. His arms flailed and his feet dangled towards the streets below, but an unseen force held the back of his jacket. Let go of me! He screamed. But there was no one holding on to him. 
As the mediator and police darted across the roof towards him, Michael heard a voice whisper, It's not your time yet. You must fulfil your purpose. What? What was this? Who are you? He felt a stern yank pulling back onto the roof, just as the equally confused police force surrounded him. It's all right, son. It's all right, said an officer. There was a silent, unsaid understanding amongst the officers of the supernatural event they had all witnessed. My purpose, whispered Michael to the officers. What is it? A few floors below, Hal materialised, smiling in the sanctuary of the office stationery cupboard. The one place in every office that should have CCTV, but never does. You must fulfil your purpose. He laughed to himself. Now that was good. He reached over to a newly delivered metal filing cabinet, still covered in plastic film. He began to heave, but found it easy to pick up with one hand. He put it down and flexed his minimal biceps, concealed in years of congealed lager fat. Added strength. What other secrets do you hold? He stroked the hexagonal honeycomb pattern and fabric of the suit. The remainder of Hal's night became a crime-finding montage worthy of Jack Kirby. By 3am in the heavy rain, the outline of a figure ascended the final few levels of the scaffolding and stood atop the shard. He was a lion over his domain, the king of all he surveys. In his deepest primal voice, Hal screamed, I am! Thunder rumbled, lightning streaked across the skyline. No one heard. The following morning, Hal woke up with minor memory loss, small gaps from the night before. He looked down to find himself still in the suit. Ordinarily, this level of extensive wear would make anything smell, but the suit always smelt new. He immediately touched the lapel, and once assured by its temporal invisibility, released a button. He felt the aches and strains of exercise, a pastime which he had no time for, and edged across the damp garden path towards the house. Darcy, his neighbour's 14-year-old daughter, looked over the wooden fence into the Maybury garden. She stared, blowing bubblegum until it popped. <sighs> Holidays. At last, willing her to go play elsewhere. Darcy shook her head no. You tired? No, I replied at the patio door. You look tired. Thank you. Had a late night? Darcy paused for effect. Again? Hal felt a sudden inner shiver. He looked at Darcy, then his eyes traced up to her bedroom window. The ledge where Darcy smoked every night, which overlooked the Maybury back garden. Hal imagined a large dotted line being drawn from Darcy's ledge to the shed. See you around, Hal said, wearily entering the house. See you around, Mr. Maybury. The draught cutting through the Maybury kitchen indicated the front door was open. A loud bleep of a reversing truck could also be heard. Hal followed the bleeping noise through to the front to reveal Trina wearing an immaculate outfit signing for a consignment from a delivery driver. Hi! Hal forced out the words, uncertain of whether reception would be forthcoming. Hi! Trina pressed sharply through thin lips. He knew right there and then this was going to be an economic exchange at best. How was Magnus? What do you care? She had a point. He didn't really care for Magda. 
What's the delivery? Plates? Cookery? We have plates. Well, now we have more. What do we need more plates for? The Renaissance Society meeting. I told you about it. Don't you listen? What, those wit? Trina shot him a look, but Hal corrected himself. Which night did you say? Thursday. I don't expect to see you after six. We clear? You're good at disappearing. Disappear. Take it in the smallest box and leaving the others, Trina departed for the kitchen. Hal stood amongst the exquisitely designed delivery boxes in the hallway. On each one read, Fine Bone China. He mouthed the words in disbelief and felt sick. It was a joint account, his redundancy money. Jesus age, Trina, what's wrong with Ikea? In the street out front, the delivery driver sat with his sliding door open playing REO Speedwagon as he completed some paperwork. Hal bounded across the garden towards the van. Excuse me, how much did that lot cost? The driver carefully removed the carbon copy receipt and handed it to Hal. You are kidding me. Norb? I could have bought a car for that. Cars? The delivery driver sighed, leaning closer. Listen, mate, it's your lucky day. We are giving a special 30% discount to all customers because of... The driver winked at Hal and glanced up into the sky and whistled. Hal looked on. You know, repeated the driver, winking again and whistling at the sky before looking back at his befuddled customer. But the hint was unappreciated. You better turn on your TV, pal. The delivery door slid shut and the driver was away, leaving Hal coughing in a cloud of exhaust fumes. Within the forest of crockery boxes, Hal fired up the set and sat in his favourite chair. The old cathode ray set was taking an unusually long time to start up, and Trina, expecting a row about the cost of fine dining, was surprised to see Hal's attention focused solely on the television. Finally, a picture. Outside St. Bart's Hospital, a dignified lady in her sixties stood with the on-screen caption, Mary Willis. I don't know, she said to the gathering of assorted press. I've seen the footage 20 times already. It's a miracle. Something saved my Michael. Something brought him back. Tears streamed down her face as an aide hugged her. The press interjected with a barrage of questions and camera flashes. That is all, said her aide and led her away. The newscaster continued with an anthem about the banking crisis. Hal switched channels. There are reports of unexplained phenomena. He switched again. The Ten Commandments. Classic Heston. Hal switched channels. It's definitely some kind of media stunt. Absolutely a viral marketing campaign with religious bent. It, it might even be art. You mean an uh, installation of thoughts. Do you not find it strange that no one's come forward? You know, once it reaches critical mass, we'll find out there's a new yogurt or movie. I don't know, something. I actually find it in bad taste. Are we in city season? Is there no real news happening in the world? Hal switched again. Music channel interview of a Californian pop starlet. I'd love to go out for dinner with him. We'd just talk, you know. Think him upstairs eats dinner, replied the presenter. You know what? He's probably sustained by pure energy or something. Okay, I, I do the eating. Channel 3. A cheap, brightly coloured daytime TV debate. The studio camera panned across a Sikh, a rabbi, a priest and a muslin cleric, and even more closely onto the final guest, the homeless man on the towpath. Osiris, Hal said aloud, leaning forward in his chair to get a better look. 
So, uh, tell me what happened next? asked a chiselled plastic presenter as earnestly as he could attempt. Well then, he used his forces on the assailants. It is God that avengeth me and subdueth the people under me, and he delivereth me from my enemies. Psalm 1847-48 Psalm 1847-48 King James edition, nodded Osiris. And in light of yesterday's events, this morning, both assailants, Raymond Trevenor and Jason Cross from East Ham, have in fact turned themselves in and are being charged in the Highbury Magistrates Court. There is no safe place from he. So, uh, what did he do? The presenter caught the eye of the floor manager counting down. He brought the tempest, the rains last night. The religious spokesman shuffled uncomfortably in their seats. The presenter continued. And then? Osiris reflected, deep in thought for a little while. Well, he said, looking the presenter in the eye before pausing for a long time. Then he asked me for a cigarette. Trina tutted. Uproarious laughter spread through the religious spokespeople, TV presenters and television crew. Everyone except Osiris, who stared dead into camera slowly, purposefully, with his large red eyes. You better watch your backs. He is coming for your asses. The Holy Ghost is regulating out there. The presenter quickly interjected. We would like to take this opportunity to apologise for the bad language. Unfortunately, this is live TV. We're very sorry for any offence. Osiris pushed in front of the presenter and two security guards quickly burst into the TV frame to seize him. The regulation has begun, Osiris repeated. Chaos broke out in the studio. Shemet, Trina shouted at the scream in disgust. Mikoda edge Shemet. She walked to the door, but had a sudden taken thought. I almost wish it was true. You would have a lot to be scared for. Hal looked into her piercing eyes blazing. You think? He replied, transfixed by the screen. He turned to Trina. Can we? She slammed the kitchen door. Talk. The Booze and Mags convenience store had remained unchanged in over 20 years. Mr Singh, the proprietor, caught sight of his most frequent customer and beamed. Hal Mabry, good to see you, baby, he said, with his perfectly aligned incisors reflecting the fluorescence at magnitude. Mr Singh called everybody baby, but on this day, Hal looked particularly lost. I'm okay, Mr Singh. Um, could I have... 20 lucky strike, Mr Singh interrupted. Certainly, Hal, baby. A little lubrication for you as well, or too early? Hal looked at the booze rack and declined. As Mr. Singh reached for a cigarette packet, Hal took in the large SLR camera and unusually large telephoto lens hanging from his neck, making Mr. Singh look like a professional paparazzi, not a convenience store owner. You're into photography? asked Hal. It takes all sort of people to make a world. Mr. Singh lifted a newspaper from the counter enabling Hal to read the headline. £50,000 reward for a picture of the Holy Ghost. Beneath it, an artist's impression of a bearded spectral entity. Jesus H. In one night? Hal mouthed in disbelief, looking at the front page. Bah ha ha! Blasphemy, replied Mr Singh. You'll never know where he is, but he's been very busy. Very busy. Now look at that there. Mr Singh patted the newspaper. 50,000 big ones, baby. Yahoo! One minute at MPs in the vice ring, 
Next, second coming. How would you figure that? Hal was unexcited, ashen. You look like you've seen the he. Have you seen him, Hal? We can split it. Mr. Singh half-joked. Hal walked to the exit. What you up to today? I got to re-fortify the shed. A man's shed is his castle, baby. On the counter sat the box of cigarettes Hal had left behind. The owner of the spy shop by East Finchley was wide. A four-free body trapped in a 16-9 universe. How fortified, he replied, his voice sombre. Hal reached into his pocket and pulled out an Agamemnon kebabs napkin, the hand-drawn schematic diagram in Biro. He slid it across the glass counter. The owner rested his designer glasses on the bridge of his nose, inspecting the plan, nodding in agreement. He reached under the table and placed a small plastic device on the glass counter. In the centre of the device was a neon thumb icon. The owner looked at the thumbprint and Hal moved his thumb onto it. The device bleeped in approval and the owner fixed Hal a thoughtful glance. How soon can it be done? Hal asked. How soon do you need it done? replied the owner, clicking his knuckles. The workers at Anderson's travelling funfair had all but finished packing up on the heath, ready for the show to move on. Their cavalcade of nearly word-worthy vehicles had begun to assemble, but as the crews de-rigged, a giant figure wearing the mask of an old man moved unseen by all. A bull terrier chained to a wooden stake began to bark. He turned to gaze at it. Immediately the terrier reverted from barking to furious howls of distress, whining sharply as if injured. What's wrong, bullseye, eh, girl? Bullseye! The tattooed ride attendant attempted to placate the animal. However, the invisible intruder had turned his attention onto something else. Inside the Hall of Mirrors, the giant man cast no reflection, stooping to avoid the ceiling. He pressed a button on the lapel of his jumpsuit and materialised. With his long arms, he reached towards the floor and picked up the stub of a crushed cigarette. The ride attendant wandered in, startled. We're closed, mate. Park's closed. Ignoring him, Giant continued to examine the cigarette closely. Come along, mate, move it. You ain't supposed to be here. The attendant raised his voice. Slowly and deliberately, the masked giant looked up and turned to face the ride attendant, who immediately began to backtrack, for as he looked at the masked man's face, the attendant realised that he had no eyes, just holes where the eye socket should have been. The attendant was able to see straight through to the back of the mask. Easy, fella. The attendant said, stepping back. I'm not supposed to be here, replied the giant. It was a statement, not a question. After the media furore of day one, Hal took a moment to reflect, sat on top of the Art Deco Southgate tube station. Whilst invisible, he considered the pros and cons of the superhero business, but he already found it too exhilarating and made a decision. On that night and the one after, Hal hit the streets. Regulating. There was an immediate and marked decrease in street crime numbers. The Metropolitan Police Commissioner was conducting a formal investigation without any leads. Hal knew all about this as he was sitting on the investigative meetings and brainstorms. Although the official line was, things were positive. The newspaper ransom swiftly increased to £75,000, then £100,000. 
There were reports of a glamour model wearing only lingerie, tying herself to a bed and on hunger strike until the Holy Ghost would take her. How briefly entertained the thought. Even considered the ethics of infidelity while invisible. She was subsequently sectioned. The non-believing Vice Phil Howe struggled with the concept of impersonating an almighty God, but he was also aware he possessed an acutely natural talent for the role. His Heston impersonation was near pitch perfect. He'd boned up on Bible passengers, and the extra strength gleaned from the suit enabled him to both smoke and drink while on patrol, but it was tiring. He had to walk or get public transport everywhere, as a car driven by an invisible driver would undoubtedly attract attention apart from on the Bishop's Avenue where everyone just looked at the vast houses. And although his suit could render him invisible, irrespective of time of day, Hal's time, his favourite time, was the night. In the early mornings, checking his neighbour's ledge for the ever-watchful bubblegum chewing Darcy, Hal would return to the shed of 14 Clifton Terrace, Finchley. It had endured a few changes since its customisation by the spy shop. The windows were one way. Entry was via thumbprint, and what appeared to be an ordinary suburban shed on the outside was a technological fortress on the inside. Hal monitored the city from five monitors. He knew he could only look at one at any one time, but Hal liked his set-up flamboyant like that. From a specially lit rail hung his favourite item, the suit. Next to that, an especially elevated fridge of beer and a cigarette rack. Hal activated the thumbprint alarm system and fell asleep in a garden gazebo. When he awoke, he found himself staring at the light-polluted London sky. These were the best of days, he thought. The salad days. It was time again to patrol, and the fourth night as he first uttered the words, I am the Holy Ghost. In a large and desolate area of Camberwell grassland, three men smoked in the darkness. Occasionally, a passerby would approach them. Money would exchange hands, and the passerby would leave. Hal studied the group from the scrub behind, stubbing out his cigarette, careful to remain downwind of the trio. He pressed the lapel button, and invisibly and silently approached through the long grass. As he closed in, he was able to hear the men talking, but not what was said. The group stood in the darkness with their backs to him. Hal moved to within twenty feet, and fifteen, and he felt a light pulling sensation around his ankle. He looked down to see a thin piece of fishing wire dragged by his leg. On pulling the wire, a small bell rang in the darkness. The men immediately turned, looking straight at Hal, but not with their eyes. Each man had a set of thermal imaging goggles trapped to his face. Hal began to back away in a zigzag, but the men tracked his movements, left and right, up and down the thermal imaging picking up Hal's head and hands, no torso. Hal backed off, tripping another wire, which made a different small bell ring. One of the men slowly began to move in a flanking position. The tallest and meanest looking of the three men was wiry with long hair. Come here, he hissed, beckoning with his finger. Come here. The men pressed the buttons on their goggles to alternate between thermal vision and normal, the outline of Hal visible only in thermal mode. Told you he was just a man, laughed the leader. In unison, they each extended the small telescopic baton. Although the suit provided enhanced strength, these men were strong, organised and in their prime. For the first time in days, Hal thought of the decline and his own activities. Be gone, men of evil, he boomed, 
but the gang edged closer in the triangle formation. Another bell rang. Hal looked to his feet, but there was no tripwire this time. From his peripheral vision, he saw a shape in the gloom, a fourth man rushing in. He didn't see the punch coming. A vicious strike from the side sent him crashing to his knees, his world spinning. The men stood over Hal, snarling, laughing. Hal tried to crawl away. The leader swung his boot into his abdomen. Hal howled in agony. No, stop, he cried. He started to crawl, but one of the gang stood on his hand. My daddy told me never to believe in ghosts. You know that? Where you going? Where you going, eh? The leader pulled out a shiv and swung it in towards Hal's chest. Hal tried to block. The shiv slid under the sleeve of the suit and into his arm. Blood spurted out of the sleeve and the three men set upon him with a flurry of kicks and batons. Hal lay in the grass beaten, wheezing and bloody. The leader stood over him, looking down triumphantly in his thermal goggles. From inside his long leather coat, he slid out a silenced pistol and slowly raised it to Hal's chest. Finish him, said one of the others. It's nothing personal, said the leader. I just think you'd be better off in the afterlife. Don't you? Hal looked into the thermal imaging lenses the man had for eyes. He was weak and bloody, gasping with short rasps of breath. You know something? I don't even care about the reward, the leader growled, then laughed, his shadow falling across Hal in the grass. Please, oh, Hal pleaded, but he could only manage a whisper. Please. The leader coldly and calmly cocked the pistol, staring directly into Hal's eyes the whole time. Hal looked on, blinking slowly, imagining what could have been, wondering if anyone would find his body, when he felt an unusual surge of mental alertness and an overriding urge to look at his chest. Very slowly, he raised his head and looked down his torso. Even in the dark, he noticed it. In the middle of the suit, dead centre, was a second button. Instinctively, he raised his bloody arm and pressed it. A small shockwave of energy hurled Hal's arms out to his side. As he stood over the body, something caught the gang leader's attention. Small lines of light began spreading across the hexagonal honeycomb lines of the suit. The honeycomb spread up from the neck quickly, growing up and over his face, until the suit completely covered him from head to toe. I'm going to count to three, the wiry leader said before immediately emptying the silence magazine into Hal's prone body. There was no movement from his body, but a low hum of power from the suit, a hum that gradually became louder and louder. The suit glowed red, then in a brilliant intense white, a white so bright everything within 30 metres was illuminated as if it was daytime. Then the brightness increased to the magnitude of a star. The gang screamed, engulfed in a whiteout. Seconds later, the honeycomb structure retreated from Hal's face. His body lay motionless, eyes closed. All around him, the men shouted in agony, incoherent. I can't see! I can't see! screamed the leader. I can't see! said another. Their faces and hands were red, raw and burnt. Help me! the third man cupped his hands over his face, writhing around on the floor. Slowly, Hal's eyes opened. He was alive. 
In a haze, he surveyed the scene. The gang members screamed and bawled, clawing at their eyes, their thermal goggles long discarded in their disorder. Howe was unable to comprehend that he was even alive or what fate had befallen the men. Invisibility was off, and the central chest button in the suit had disappeared. Slumped on the grass, Howe reached for the lapel button and pressed it repeatedly, but the suit was unresponsive. He was unable to become invisible. A gang member stumbled towards him, grasping at the ear in panic. Hal pushed his arm away, avoiding the mass of outstretched arms and limbs of the others. He managed to rise to his feet, and as he did, amidst the chaos and calls, he became aware of the extent of his injuries. The leader was close, breathing hard, on his knees. Hal raised his boot to kick him, when the leader shouted, Who's there? Who's there? Hal stood over him watching him furiously claw at his eyes and burnt face, filled with thoughts of vengeance. But an agonising pain overrode him. He looked on as the men scrambled around and turned away, trudging slowly across the scrubland. Light glinted off an alarm wire. Hal changed course to drag his leg through it. A bell rang again and a disorientated quartet screamed. Bleatingly he smiled, then grimaced as he looked at his hands, covered in blood. Hal made his way across the grass as best he could, moving as far away from the gang as possible. Their screams echoed in the distance, but he found the direction of the screams soon scattered across his senses, and the street lamps ahead became a phantasmagoria of light, the horizon warping. The only constant was the sound of his footsteps and the sour taste of blood in his mouth. Thank you, he whispered to the suit as he continued towards the hazy street lamps. Thank you. A black shape lay ahead in the grassland. As he got closer, it was clear the shape was in fact the carcass of a dead dog. Hal trod straight through it without the energy to walk around, the stench temporarily returning him to the land of the living. Several steps further, he reached concrete. The South London Street was empty. From behind him, he could hear the sound of an approaching car engine. Hal turned towards it and tried to lift his arm. The driver slowed, rolled down the window, shouting, Chunky scum! Before screeching away. The temporal light of hope in Hal's eyes disappeared. Then, just a little further ahead, he saw a bus stop. He stumbled towards it, concentrating all his energy on the every step. First 30 metres, then 25. As he approached, he was able to read the electronic timetable, displaying due for several buses. Hal stumbled, step by step, closer and closer. Almost there, he said to himself. But the red writing of the arrivals indicator became gradually darker until his whole world faded to black. As he looked around at the intense whiteness surrounding him, he considered that heaven was exactly as he'd imagined it to be if he'd believed in it. It was a brilliant white, mysterious, magnificent, and Hal felt free as if he was floating. He even let out a sound. He didn't know why. The brightness dissipated and a room came into view. Hal inhaled the sterile scent of cleanliness with a momentary sense of disappointment and relief. Can you hear me? A voice softly repeated. He turned his attention to the out-of-focus doctor standing over him. How did I get here? Hal added, slowly phasing in and out of consciousness. Gingerly, he pulled himself upright to a seated position. Grimacing the whole way. 
You're a very lucky man, added the doctor as he commenced his examination. A dog walker found you unconscious by a bus stop. Follow my finger. The doctor moved his finger around the ear as Hal's eyes tracked his movements. Then the doctor began prodding him. Ow! Hal blocked, not amused. There's some bruising on the ribs. Feel any pain here? The doctor added, holding Hal's forearm. Oh, Jesus, H. Doc. Do you have any recollection of what happened? You appear to have been attacked and... The doctor kept talking, but to Hal his voice trailed off as if reduced in volume by imaginary remote control. Pulling back the thin hospital sheets revealed Hal's wearing a white hospital robe with colourful polka dots. The bleep of the heart rate monitor next to the bed swiftly increased. Hal began to search his surroundings with a newfound urgency, groaning as he did. Please, sir, can you relax? Ignoring the doctor, Hal opened the bedside cabinet. Where is she? The heart rate monitor continued to rapidly increase. What are you after? Where is she? Hal demanded. Did you cut her up? Sir, you need to rest. Did you cut her up? The doctor looked on motionless. Hal let out a big gasp of air, defeated, staring into space. You don't understand. You came here alone, sir. It's the suit. I call it her. I call it that. Hal was lost. The doctor scratched his forehead, then reached below the clipboard at the bottom of Hal's bed. At the bottom of the bed, pulled out the suit. As soon as he saw it, Hal's grey eyes came alive in childlike wonder. The doctor passed the suit across the hospital bed. Although it was covered in dirt and blood, somehow it was intact. Hal sighed and closed his eyes in relief. You're lucky. She wouldn't like that, you know, being cut up. Hal ran his hand softly across the honeycomb exoskeleton, tenderly stroking the fabric of all the energy he was able to muster. He pulled the suit to his chest in relief. Slowly, his heart rate decreased. She wouldn't like that, Hal repeated, the haze returning. He looked at his bandaged arm. What's the damage? You've been attacked. The arm is okay, just bruising. What about the gunshots? You weren't shot, were you? Where? Hal positioned the suit so he could see the chest. Combing his hand across it, he carefully removed three bullet casings trapped within its fibre. Raising his eyebrows in surprise, he smiled. Bulletproof. He slid over and pressed the lapel button. Invisibility on. He pressed the button again. Invisibility off. Hal laughed to himself, then had a moment of realisation. Raising his head, he saw the astonished doctor looking at the suit and at himself. He pressed the lapel button again. He could feel the doctor piecing together the entirety of his existence in front of his eyes. Well, look at that. Not what you thought, I bet. Wife always told me I was sloppy. How long have you two been going out? The doctor asked, looking at the suit, then at Hal. A week or so, only seriously in the last few days. It's a new relationship. Hal became distant again, then smiled. The wife doesn't know. You're married? Two whole years. About 172 days good. 200 days fear to Midlin, and the rest. Hal paused, 
Pah. She's not religious either. He stared into space. And you? The doctor listened attentively. Before the redundancy, you know, I used to be a, a telecoms engineer. Hal felt around for his keys. You got a cigarette, Doc? The doctor pointed to the no-smoking sign. Guess that wasn't your question, was it? You know, the police are outside. I'd like to interview you about your assault. I could let them in if you'd like. Gonna be a tough right up that one. Three men were also admitted this evening. All three, apparently, are wanted criminals. All three had an assortment of second and third degree burns, between 10 and 15%. They claimed to have seen a bright light. They were discovered cowering together in an area of scrubland, not far from where you were found, holding on to each other, pleading for their lives. Several witnesses corroborate their story. The light was so bright, there have been reports of sightings as far north as Potter's Bar. All three men have extensive burning to their retinas, resulting in a permanent loss of vision. Hal stared straight ahead. They're blind. That's correct. Hal's mind flashed back to being within the suit as it closed up to protect him and seeing the faint orange glow of light around him. They claim it was the Holy Ghost, the doctor continued. They say he was just a man. Did they say anything else? Not as yet. Hal twisted his body to let his legs dangle off the side of the bed, grimacing as he did. Where do you think you're going? I gotta check out, Doc. You can't go anywhere in your condition. You're probably right. Hal paused before turning back to the doctor. You know, Doc, do you like TV? What? It's a simple question. Sometimes. I like TV. I've 90 days of TV listings at home. Hal paused. The wife calls it the idiot box. Guess that makes me an idiot. Maybe she was right. You need to lie down, rest. You may have had a head trauma. We need to run more tests. I watched a documentary once. It was about medicine. Young doctors and nurses, the hopes of uh, the next medical generation, that kind of thing. None of them were in decline. At least not yet. It wasn't my bag, I must say. No offence, Doc. None taken. I was just after some filler for the evening session of the snooker championships to kick off. Anyway, there was this part where all of the young doctors were told about this oath. An ancient oath of good medical practice. Now, what's that called, Doc? You mean the Hippocratic Oath? The Hippocratic Oath. That's the one. Good memory. I guess that's why you're a doctor. Hal looked the doctor in the eyes. Now, what was that phrase used? Oh, I remember. Patient confidentiality. That's it, isn't it? Patient confidentiality. The doctor forced through pursed lips before sighing. A wry smile crept across his face. The suit slid up Hal's body by itself, and Hal stood shaky but strengthened by its inner power. You shouldn't leave. The Holy Ghost is getting a minicab. Who'd have thought? Hey, have you spoken to anyone about this? Apart from her. Hal looked at the suit and shook his head. No. Maybe I should. Hal stood up opposite the doctor. What's your name, Doc? Christopher. Hal extended his hands to shake. Charlton, Hal replied. They shook hands, then Hal pressed the lapel button and faded in opacity till he could no longer be seen. His footsteps led to the door 
and the door appeared to open by itself. Thank you, Hal's voice said out of thin air. Maybe I will talk to someone. Who? No idea. A police officer poked his head round the door to a room with only a doctor, a clipboard and no assault victim, and Christopher at a loss for words. Hal stumbled through triage, towards the exit, following the brightly coloured painted lines on the floor, then changed his mind, wandered further into the hospital. A policeman stood guard outside a room. Hal bypassed him and entered. Inside the small ward on four beds lay his four assailants, each handcuffed to their metal beds. Each man's eyes and face were bandaged, with two of the men hooked up to breathing apparatus. Hal stood for a moment, watching the badly damaged men trying to breathe. He pulled up a chair next to the gang leader. Remember me? Hal said in his normal voice. The leader's breathing quickened. Guess that's a yes. Hal placed his hand on the leader's head. Quite a bad situation, don't you think? You're unable to see, and me, invisible. The gang leader wheezed in panic. He reached across with his burnt and bandaged hand to hit the emergency button, but Hal pushed it out of reach. You like hospitals. Never really cared for them myself. No, I, I really never did. I maybe it's the smell. What do you think? What do you, what do you want? The assailant gurgled in agony. Hal smiled. The press helicopter circled the South London scrubland at night. The green and black hues of night vision revealed the scorched grass in a 50-metre circle. In the middle of the circle was an untouched piece of grassland. The cameraman gazed down in astonishment. She switched to her telephoto lens and turned to the pilot. Hold it right there. What have we got? The pilot manoeuvred the controls for the helicopter to hover. The cameraman snapped off a few shots before switching to an ENG news camera to record everything. The pilot held position without line of sight, frequently looking at the camerawoman to get a lead. The camerawoman made an audible gasp. What? asked the pilot. The camerawoman picked up her mobile phone and hit speed dial. Jack, news desk, Collie, is that you? Hold pages one, two, three, four, five and seven. Is this some kind of joke? Do it, Jack. Do it now. Thanks for listening. The third and final part of the I Am is coming next Saturday. Altitude 1600.